this week is Parashat Vayera, of course, the fourth Torah portion in the cycle. So we're just getting rolling again here after the High Holy Days. I'll be talking a little bit this morning about testing, of course, and testing in the fear of God. Avraham, of course, went through a lot of tests, as we know. Um, tradition tells us, of course, that there was 10 tests Avraham went through, and so whether you... Uh, of course, the sages don't agree on that. Rashi has his list of 10. Rambam has a slightly different list of 10. But there's a lot of overlap. And of course, they're pretty easy to pick out. The trials include, but are not limited to, of course, leaving his family and homeland. This was last week's parsha. Of course, that's a test you go through. Uh, his wife, Sarah, being kidnapped by Pharaoh's officials. That can't be easy to deal with. Um, the kings capture Lot, and he has to go rescue them. Has to wage war against the kings. Another test. Um, the whole mess with Hagar and Sarah, of course, is a test. Domestic tests, you know, inside the home are especially difficult to deal with, of course. Another test. At an advanced age, he had to circumcise himself. Probably the most physically taxing of all the tests he had to go through. Um, driving away Hera and Ishmael. This week was the last test. Of course, it is the binding of Isaac. This would be the 10th test that he went through. And it deals with many elements, of course, including um, testing, fear of God, and all that. So um, I would like to briefly read this and then give you some thoughts about this testing. It is found um, in Bereshit, or Genesis chapter 22. This is the binding of Isaac. Makidak Yitzchak. It's in chapter 22, verse 1. I'll read the first 14 verses. <clears throat> After these things, God tested Avraham. He said to him, I'm Avraham, and he answered, here I am. And he said, go uh, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Yitzchak, and go to the land of Moriah. There you are to offer him as a burnt offering on a mountain that I will point out to you. So Avraham got up early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him, together with Yitzchak, his son. He cut the wood for the burnt offering, departed, and went toward the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place in the distance. Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go there, worship, and return to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and laid it on Yitzchak, his son. Then he took in his hand the fire and the knife, and they both went on together. Yitzchak spoke to his father, oh, my father, and he answered, here I am, my son. He said, I see the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham replied, God will provide himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son, and they both went on together. They came to the place God had told him about, and Abraham built an altar there and set the wood in order, bound Yitzchak, his son, and laid him on the altar on the wood. Then Abraham put out his hand and took the knife to kill a son, but the angel of Adonai called uh, to him out of heaven. Abraham, Abraham, he answered, here I am. He said, the angel, don't lay your hand on the boy, don't do anything to him, for now I know that you are a man who fears God because you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught up in the bushes by its horns. Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering in the place of his son. Um, Abraham called the place Adonai Yireh, 
um, as it is said to this day, on this mountain Adonai is seen. So this whole story here, obviously there's many, many messianic parallels that you can see in the story. Um, I think we've uh, discussed this you know, subject at length during Rosh Hashanah and other times of the year. But if you look at this story outside of the messianic parallels, you can just read it for what it is, these verses can be a little bit problematic, right? I remember Rav Lorberg posed a couple of questions about this. He would ask, how can the God who speaks to Noah, he says to Noah, whoever sheds human blood by a human being will his own blood be shed. How can he tell Abraham to offer his only son as a burnt offering? It's kind of hard to sort of resolve that in the mind. And even beyond that, it's almost in verse 12 there, it almost seems like God backtracks a little bit or changes his mind when he has the angel say to him, don't do anything. Now I know you're a man who fears God. Now certainly God's not similar to human beings where he changes his mind. God doesn't need to test him to prove to himself anything. God knows all these things. But the nature of the testing sure calls for some, um, some thought on that and some inspection onto what exactly is going on here. I mean, this is his 10th test already. Why so many tests? Hasn't he proven himself already? I mean, there's no doubt, of course, I think we all know that people get tested by God to prove themselves, right, whether they're capable of withstanding a test. God is all-knowing and has no doubts about anything, but still, we get tested, and I think we all know that overall testing is for our benefit, of course. Tests are often given to us by God as a means of purifying and strengthening us. Testing also, in the case here, as you read, teaches us to fear God. Fearing God's much different than believing in God. Many people believe in God or believe that there is a God, but they don't fear God. It's a different thing. The account, of course, of the binding of Isaac here has a couple principles that Rav Lorberg pointed out. First, it shows the degree and limit of the fear of God, the degree and limit, right? Many of us, including myself, would probably pass some of the earlier tests that he went through. But I'm not sure I could pass this test. I mean, the degree of this test is pretty extreme. When you think of anything in your life that you'd be willing to give up, my child, I think, would be the very last thing on my list. One would typically give up their own life before they give up their child's life. So I'm not sure if I have what it takes to pass a test like this. The second principle that Rav talked about was that the testing brings out a completeness and a righteousness in us. So it gives us... Uh, a sense of a fear of God, but it completes us in a sense that we read about in the book of James, James chapter 1. Uh, many of us are familiar with this. Um, you don't have to turn there. It's just a couple verses I'll read for you. James chapter 1, verse 2 says, Regard it all as joy, my brothers, when you face various kinds of temptations. For you know that the testing of your trust produces perseverance, so that you may be complete and whole. We all want to be complete and whole. We all want wholeness in our life. We have to deal with the testings. It's very difficult to think of that as joy. I'm not sure Avraham had a whole lot of joy as he was going through this process, but it did bring out completeness in him and a righteousness in him. Avraham's fear, of course, of God is contrasted 
with the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah in this week's Torah portion. And contrasts have been something that has been a common theme for about the past month, beginning with the Garden of Eden. That's contrasted with the fall of man. Um, Cain and Abel are contrasted one against the other. Um, Noah and Nimrod, and Parshad Noah, there's, there's uh, the contrast of righteousness and wickedness there as well, just like with Cain and Abel. And this week, there's the contrast of righteous Abraham and Sodom and Gomorrah. Not only can we relate to testing, right, and fearing God, but we can relate to Sodom and Gomorrah because at times, at times, it sort of feels like we're already living in it, or at least, the very least, heading in that direction. The fear of God is uh, something that's becoming rarer and rarer, although there's plenty of people that say they believe in God. It's frustrating to live amongst rulers and judges that espouse evil while calling it good and who elevate the worldly while canceling righteous people. David laments the same thing in his time. We like to think at some times that this world is especially evil, but I think every generation has a Sodom and Gomorrah. And it was no different in this week's Torah portion with Avraham. It was no different with David either. Um, We're going to look at a couple Psalms here. Psalm Tehillim chapter 10. Psalm chapter 10, if you're in the complete Jewish Bible, is going to be on page 798. Or if you have a different version of scripture, you're going to have to flip around a little bit. It shouldn't be too far from there. Um, there's a lot to draw out of this. This, is gonna, this psalm is going to sound like Sodom and Gomorrah. It's going to sound like some of our rulers that we have today. It's uh, one of them timeless things. Tehillim, Psalm chapter 10, verse 1. Why, Adonai, do you stand at a distance? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? The wicked and their arrogance hunt down the poor who get caught up in the schemes they think up. For the wicked boasts about his lusts. He blesses greed and despises Adonai. Every scheme of the wicked and his arrogance says, there is no God, so it won't be held against me. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are way up there, so he takes no notice. His adversaries, he scoffs at them all. In his heart, he thinks, I will never be shaken. I won't meet trouble, not now or ever. His mouth is full of curses, deceit, and oppression. Under his tongue, mischief and injustice. He waits near settlements and ambush and kills an innocent man in the streets. His eyes are on the hunt for the helpless. Lurking unseen like a lion in his lair, he lies in wait to pounce on the poor, then sees the poor and drags him off in his net. Yes, he stoops, crouches down low, and the helpless wretch falls into his clutches. He says in his heart, God forgets, he hides his face, he will never see. Arise, arise Adonai, God, raise your hand, don't forget the humble, Why does the wicked despise God and say in his heart, it won't be held against me? You have seen, for you look at mischief and grief, so that you can take the matter in hand. The helpless commit himself to you. You help the fatherless, break the arm of the wicked. As for the evil man, search out his wickedness until there is none left. Adonai is king forever and ever. The nations have vanished from the land. Adonai, you have heard what the humble want. You encourage them and listen to them to give justice to the fatherless and oppressed so that no one on earth will strike terror again. 
and so uh, encouraging. But much of this um, Psalm 10 here is something I think a lot of us see. It's the, why do the wicked seem to flourish and seem to um, just thumb their nose at God, yet they seem to be healthy, have lots of kids, successful in business. And in our lives, oftentimes we are tested with a lot of things. Almost seems like maybe God's not really interested in testing these people. It's just us, I suppose, that are seeking him that get tested. But I think God does test the wicked as well. Continuing in Psalm verse 11. Psalm 11 verse 1. In Adonai I find refuge. So how can you say to me, flee like a bird to the mountains? See how the wicked are drawing their bows and setting their arrows on the string to shoot the shadows at uh, honest men? If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Adonai is holy in his temple. Adonai in his throne is in, Adonai, his throne is in heaven. His eyes see and test humankind. Adonai tests the righteous, but he hates the wicked and the lover of violence. I want to look at those two verses here for a minute. Verses 5, um, well, verse 5, those two kind of sentences. Number one, no, the end of verse 4, okay. His eyes see and test humankind, and then Adonai tests the righteous, but he hates the wicked. So humankind there in the Hebrews, uh, B'nai Adam. It is sons of Adam, literally is what it says in the Hebrew. Now, the literal sons of Adam, of course, Cain and Abel, and one was righteous and one was uh, wicked. But in a broader sense, sons of Adam, you could think are really descendants of Adam. That would be all of us would be sons of Adam. And so the next line there where it says, Adonai tests the righteous, the Hebrew here is a little bit tricky to figure out. If you have an NASB Bible, New American Standard, I'm a big fan of that version. If you have an NASB, it says Adonai tests the righteous and the wicked and hates the lover of violence. So kind of, and I think that makes a little bit more sense how the NASB renders this. Adonai tests the righteous and the wicked because that is sort of qualifying the verse ahead of it. The verse ahead of it says he, his eyes see and test the sons of Adam. Who are the sons of Adam? Cain and Abel, you have one um, righteous and you have one wicked. They both get tested. And so it's sort of like a parallelism there, right? He tests the sons of Adam. He tests the righteous and the wicked. I think that makes a lot of sense and is helpful for me when I was kind of thinking through some of this. Because wicked, the wicked do face tests, I suppose, and that is meant to drive them to repentance. It's just that they ignore them. And that's probably why the wicked seem so angry about anything to do with God or religion or anything righteous. There's just a, such a disdain um, for uh, religious people amongst the wicked. And I think maybe that explains some of it that they can't handle their testing, they're not turning towards God, and that gotta make life pretty frustrating for them. Anyways, in our lives, we have seasons, of course, where we have some peace, and we have seasons of testing as well. Trying to pass these tests isn't always easy. Oftentimes, there isn't a happy ending where we have clarity on the lesson that we're supposed to learn. Life is hard sometimes. Sometimes there are failed relationships, failed marriages, there are chronic illnesses. There is the death of a loved one, especially a child. 
And these challenges are very painful, and they can grieve the soul. And sometimes it's not enough to hear, um, God has a plan, or this is a test for you. Sometimes that's just not, it's not satisfying when you're in deep pain like that. And it's okay to be frustrated and hurt. Life can be hard, and then life can be really hard. I mean, sometimes it's only the passage of time that seems to um, bring relief to the soul. Not all tests have answers we see with clarity afterwards. Um, not all tests have answers that are satisfying. And um, down here in our lowly human position, sometimes that's just um, difficult to deal with sometimes. It's uh, very helpful if we can develop trust. There's a lot about trusting and being faithful, of course. We all know um, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8 is probably a section of Scripture we almost all know by heart, of course. By trusting, Abraham obeyed after being called to go out to a place which God would give him as a possession. He went out without knowing where he was going. By trusting, he lived as a temporary resident in the land of promise. So we have to help and try to develop that trust that will help complete us, that will help us persevere, that will help with a greater fear of God. Remember, Abraham had to go through all these tests on his own. He had no rabbi. He had no pastor. He had no great uh, teacher or an elder or a sage that he could go to for counsel. He had no Bible. He had no internet. He was really all on his own. Yet, he was a righteous man of God. Um, he was kind to strangers, even praying for the wicked people of Sodom and Gomorrah. When he learned about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, he prayed for the people, that the people there would be spared destru destruction. How much more so should we be able to develop that kind of righteousness? We have each other. We have people that come before us. We have the scriptures and so much more to help us develop uh, of faithfulness? And how much more should we be able to pray for the wicked in our generation? We need to pray for the wicked that may seem to come against us. We need to pray for the people that um, we didn't vote for last Tuesday, right? The heart may not want to do that. The inclination is to pray for their destruction. I understand this. But we must pray for their well-being and spiritual walk, like Abraham did. We pray for each other, of course, as we go through these trials. Every trial is meant to make us better, to elevate us, to bring us from the earthly towards the heavenly. It is not always clear from our vantage point down here why he does things from up there, but we trust that the reward for all of this awaits us. I'll close with this verse. At the end of 2 Timothy, as Rav Shaul or Paul, as he's kind of closing down that letter, he begins to lament about some of the testing he went through, some of the people coming against him, some of the people trying to uh, test him. It seems like there's sabotage of his work going on there. And he closes with this thought. He says, the Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. And amen to that. Um, may we be, uh, stay focused on the heavenly kingdom. May we endure the trials that we face today, helping others to do the same, um, using Torah and the prophets and all the writings to help encourage us to do that. And may we know that when Yeshua brings us into the kingdom, 
we will then realize that all this testing was truly for our benefit. Shabbat Shalom.